Okay, so here we are in chapter 13 of Zechariah, and uh, hopefully uh, I will be able to do a good job of kind of getting a message across that I want to get from this uh, passage. The book of Zechariah is a difficult book. I knew it was going to be a challenge uh, going into it, and it has definitely been a challenge, but I really hope, uh, I'm hoping I can express this in a way that will make it real clear uh, where I'm coming from on this, and also too, just show a consistency in how we interpret the book of Zechariah, because I think this is probably the most cherry-picked book in the Old Testament, where as far as people just kind of taking verses and just ignoring a lot of other things too. So I think uh, the way I'm going to try to present this to you tonight will hopefully help uh, bring a lot of light to this, and hopefully uh, by after next week. Uh, when we finish up this book, you will be able to read through the book of Zechariah and have a really good idea of what's going on. Now, I wish I could tell you verse by verse, line by line, I can tell you just clearly what that verse is talking about. I can't do that with this book. There's some pretty tough passages in here that, you know, have me scratch my head a little bit. Now, my explanation for some of those things, especially when it's talking about certain places, is that it meant perfect sense in those days. You know, when they... Uh, understood the political situation of that day, the countries that were around them. The Bible doesn't really tell us enough about that. So I'm not going to pretend I know how to explain every one of those verses. But chapters 12 and 13, though, have always been confusing chapters for anyone who is a futurist, which we are futurists. Okay, We believe uh, there is much prophecy that is still yet to be fulfilled. We do not believe it was all fulfilled uh, all the prophecy was fulfilled at Christ's first coming. However, a lot of prophecy was fulfilled at Christ's first coming. A lot, but not all. Okay? Now, one thing that you've probably been taught, one thing you've probably heard before, and I've talked about this before, and this is partially true. How many of you have ever heard of the mountain peaks of prophecy? All right? Okay, and if, if, you, if, if you're not familiar with the mountain peaks of prophecy, what they'll usually do, they'll show a picture of like a prophet standing there, and he's looking straight ahead. All right, so let's, you know, picture just written on paper. The prophet's kind of looking that direction, and then you, like, draw a mountain like that on paper, and you can see that peak, and then you'll draw another mountain behind that even higher, okay? And the prophet, he can see the two peaks, but he can't see what's in between, okay? And so what they'll often say, those mountain peaks are Christ's first coming and Christ's second coming. And what the prophets couldn't see was what was in between, and that was the church age, is what they'll say. Okay? Now, I do think that that's a good way to illustrate some things with prophecy, talking about the mountain peaks. However, it, when you read Old Testament prophecy, you know, it's really hard. Yeah, you can't see the church age, really. You can. There's a few examples where it's like, okay, there it is. But they never, there's no way they would have been able to see it. Okay? It's clear God always knew about it. Okay? When you're reading Old Testament prophecy, we can go back and look and see, yep, God knew what was going to happen. There, there's no doubt about that. But that I do believe that when we see a lot of those prophecies of Christ's first and second coming, I do believe it was written in a way and it, where it was supposed to all be fulfilled at Christ's first coming, but because of the rejection of the Messiah, not everything was fulfilled. Therefore, we do have two separate mountain peaks. 
All right, so do you all, all get what I'm, what I'm saying right there? So they were supposed to see, when reading these prophecies of Christ's first coming, they were supposed to see events from the first and second coming. They were all supposed to happen then, but them rejecting the Messiah, it did change some things. Okay? And the fact that God knew it was going to happen ahead of time didn't mean that you know, he wasn't giving them a chance or, or it wasn't written in a way. For them to do things a certain way. So hopefully that all makes sense. But they, you know, these have been confusing for dispensationalists or non-dispensationalists. They often get confused with this. Because over and over again, too, these passages refer to that day. Okay? And we're going to take a look at that day. We're going to define that day in this message. Because most people would say that day is the day of the Lord. Whenever you're reading the Bible, whenever you're hearing them talk about prophecy, they're like, in that day, it's talking about the day of the Lord. And I think that I, I, you know, most time I would agree with you on that. The problem is when reading these chapters that seem to clearly be about the end times, we all we also see things that were fulfilled by Jesus at his first coming. So whenever the prophets talking about that day, which we would say is the day of the Lord, we see Jesus fulfilling these prophecies at his first coming. And we even see the New Testament saying it was fulfilled. So, you know, what do we do with that? Because I don't believe, too, that that day has to be like a 24-hour period. Okay? So what some people would do, like maybe the preterists would do, is they would basically say, well, the day, you know, we're, we're in the day of the Lord. Now, but it's necessary, you, know, what the, you know, the day of the Lord is an age, you could say. And it began at Christ's coming, because even Peter, you know, he mentioned the sun being darkened and moon blood before the great trouble. You know, he was saying it's like he preached it like it was going on then at that time. And, you know, therefore, the day of the Lord, it's like an age that we are in right now. Well, I don't I don't believe that. I don't believe that. I don't believe that at all. I do believe what Zechariah was prophesying about was all something that was supposed to happen at the same time, but it just didn't all happen. At the same time. So when we're reading Zechariah, we are going to see prophecies in one chapter about Christ's first coming. And in that same chapter, we're going to see prophecies that will be fulfilled at Christ's second coming. Okay? And uh, hopefully uh, this will be clear as, I, as we go through this and I show you all these things. So, you know, we should never be content just cherry picking scriptures from Zechariah. We should know what to do with the whole book with all the chapters. And what I believe is clearly going on here is we're seeing things that were supposed to be at Christ's first coming. And while much did take place, not all of it did. There were, and so what parts were fulfilled? You know, what parts were? Well, basically, Jesus' parts were fulfilled, but Israel's parts were not fulfilled. So I think that's one way to explain it. But the parts that were not fulfilled, okay, get this, the parts that were not fulfilled by Israel... They will be fulfilled in the future. Okay? So, it's not necessary for us to try to understand how every little detail, too, will be fulfilled because of the fact we're under a new and better covenant. And I've already showed you, I mean, crystal clear in earlier chapters that some things have changed. For example, in Zechariah and in Ezekiel, it prophesied of a future temple that revelation spells out there's not going to be a temple why is that because that old temple was something that would have come under the old covenant but under the new covenant jesus christ 
is the temple. And that's better. We have a better covenant with better promises. So let's go ahead and go through this chapter. Let's take a look at some things that have been fulfilled and that have not been fulfilled. So verse 1 says, In that day there shall be a fountain open to the house of David, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and for uncleanness. Okay, now, this is a real easy one to say on one hand that it has happened. Okay? So, can anybody tell me when this would have, would have happened, a fountain being opened in the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and uncleanness? At the crucifixion, right? John chapter 19, verse 33. It says, uh, I lost my spot. Oh, man, I don't know if I have that. Yeah, you know, let me turn over there. I didn't put I didn't put that on my notes. So this is you know a very well known story. We all know about this. Apparently, this was a, even a scene on this part so famous. This was a scene in the Passion of the Christ. I never watched this, but I was told that the part where the blood and water came out of Christ, Mary like stood underneath it, catching it in her hands, just kind of showing how she participated. She uh, you know participated in the whole thing, making her more a part of everything when it comes to our salvation. But it says in verse 33, But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they break not his legs. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and forthwith came there out blood and water. And he saw it, bear record, and his record is true. And he knoweth that he saith true, that ye might believe. For these things were done, that the scripture should be fulfilled, a bone of him should not be broken. And again, another scripture, they shall look on him, whom they pierced. Now we saw that last week, didn't we? We saw that verse was quoted, in, or um, that was fulfilled, or it was mentioned in Zechariah chapter 12. They would look on him when they pierced. That happened. So they look at him when they pierced in chapter 12, and in chapter 13, we have a fountain that's coming for Israel for sin and uncleanness. That clearly was the blood of Jesus Christ. That's why we sing songs like there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Okay? So, you know, that is a real easy one to say that was fulfilled at Christ's first coming. All right? But I think there's also a more literal future fulfillment of it, too. Look what it says in Revelation chapter 22. Revelation chapter 22, we're all the way at the very end. It says in verse 1, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. And in the midst of the street of it, on either side of the river, was there a tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. And his servants shall serve him, and they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. And there shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither the light of the sun. For the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. So we do see there's going to be a literal fountain someday. You know, this is something that happens at the very end. So on one hand, you could say it was fulfilled at Christ's first coming. But on the other hand, too, you could say it's going to be more fulfilled, you know, literally fulfilled at his second coming. And I'll show more proof of that here in a little bit. But we need before we do that, though, let's go ahead and let's define what that day is. Okay. All right, let's not be like a dispensationalist and just read that day and then just attach whatever we want to it. Let's be honest with the scriptures when it's talking about that day, because that day is just constantly mentioned. Let's find out what that day is. So the first time we see that day in Zechariah, it's in chapter 2, verses 10 
and 11. So turn over there to chapter 2. And let's look at the first time that day is mentioned. It says, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for lo, I come, and I will dwell in the midst of thee, saith the Lord. And many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day, and shall be my people, and I will dwell with dwell in the midst of thee, and thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me unto thee. Now we cover this when we are in chapter two. That day that Jesus was prophesying about that day that he would dwell with them. We see that fulfilled in Revelation chapter twenty one. And that's also where it mentions there's no temple there. For the Lord, okay, he is the temple. But in Zechariah, we see a temple. In Ezekiel, it says the same thing. We're not going to take the time to go to all those passages. We probably should, but, uh, you know, I just need to remind you of them. Those, you know, right there, it prophesied in Ezekiel 37 that God was going to put his temple in the midst of them and he would dwell with them and they would be his people. That clearly changes in Revelation. He says the exact same thing. But it says that there will be no temple. So those changes are very important that we understand those uh, if we're going to be consistent. In fact, it looks, in Ezekiel 37, verse 26, it says, Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in the midst of them forevermore. Okay. Now let's think about this. God here is saying, I will set my sanctuary in the midst of them forevermore. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Yea, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Okay, now does this, are we stretching it to attach this to what we just read in chapter 2? He's saying the exact same thing here. It says, And the heathen shall know that I, the Lord, do sanctify Israel, when my sanctuary shall be in the midst of them forevermore. In Revelation 21, talking about the new heaven and the new earth, he's been saying forevermore. If it's forevermore, that means it's got to go on forever, right? But when we get to Revelation chapter 21, he sees the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down. Verse 3, And I heard a great voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them. And shall be their God. Are we stretching it to attach that to the same thing? That is clearly Jesus keeping his promise of what he, uh, the promise he made in Ezekiel 37 and in Zechariah chapter 2. But there is a difference. In verse 22, it says, And I saw no temple therein. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. So we see Jesus will keep his promise of a tabernacle being in the midst of them and him dwelling with them. But notice that he now is the tabernacle. Why? Because the works for our salvation, the works for uh, cleansing of our sin, it was not done in a temple made by hands. It was done in his body. That was something that was done under the new covenant. So while some things are a little different, notice though, Jesus still kept the promises that he made in the Old Testament, didn't he? But in a better way. What's better? A temple or Jesus Christ? You know, what's better? A temple where you got to sacrifice animals forever? Or the blood of Jesus Christ? Just done. Finished. So he kept his promise. It was just in a better way. But just no, but notice, there is there are differences there. You cannot deny those differences. So, 
that day in chapter 2 that it mentions, it's talking about a time when God would dwell with them and be with them. Okay? Now, you know, are we in that day right now? No. Okay, now spiritually on one hand you can say we are, we've got the Holy Spirit. Okay, we've got the promise of it, but physically he is not here, but physically he is coming. We believe he, we believe in a literal physical return of Jesus Christ. And that's when these things will be fulfilled at his, at his second coming. So verse 2 of Zechariah 13 says, And it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord, um, that the host, or I will cut off the names of the idols out of the land, and they shall be no more remembered, and I also will cause the prophets of the unclean spirits to pass out of the land. Now, I don't believe this did happen at Christ's first coming. Now, you can try to tie this in and make some kind of spiritual application, but there's, there was definitely false prophets in the land. It was the Apostle Paul, too, who, you know, whenever he was preaching the churches, he was warning them how there's going to rise false prophets among you. So the false prophets are not gone. There's no doubt about that. But when Jesus Christ comes at the second coming, will there be any more false prophets? No, there will not. That did not get fulfilled at his first coming. It says in verse 3, And it shall come to pass, that when any shall yet prophesy, then his father and his mother that begat him shall say unto him, Thou shalt not live, for thou speakest lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and his mother that begat him shall thrust him through when he prophesieth. And it shall come to pass in that day that the prophet shall be ashamed every one of his vision when he hath prophesied. Neither shall he w- they wear a rough garment to deceive. But he shall say, I am no prophet, I am an husband, for man taught me to keep cattle from my youth. Now what the Rachmanites do with this passage here, they teach from this passage here that in the millennial kingdom, it will be a capital offense to preach the gospel. That's what they say. Now, why, why would they say something that stupid? Okay. The reason they say that, they use it to advance the multiple gospel agenda. So what they're doing is they're saying, you know, obviously that's going to be another dispensation. Bill Grady told me this over the phone when I, when I had my conversation with him that day. He was talking about how it was going to be a capital offense to preach the gospel in the millennial kingdom. He was using that to prove there was another gospel. And I was like, what in the world are you talking about? And he went to this passage right here. But notice, just because it says because they're prophesying, that doesn't mean they're preaching truth. Okay? The Bible talks about people prophesying deceits, prophesying lies. It talks about them not wearing a rough garment anymore to deceive. This is not them, this is not them getting in trouble for preaching the true gospel. Yeah, but they'll go to that verse in Hebrews, you know, they shall teach no man every, you know, uh, teach no more every man to love the Lord. For all shall know him from least even the greatest. And then they'll just basically tie that in saying it's like everybody saved during that time. And if you get caught preaching the gospel, you're going to get killed. That doesn't even make sense. That's That's just foolish. Okay, yes, it says prophesying here, but false prophets, listen, it, it, to be a false prophet you have to be prophesying something false. And it's real easy to see in this passage that they're not prophesying truth, they're prophesying lies. And they will be killed. I don't ever see where this happened in history. Okay? 
In fact, false prophets have always abounded. They've always thrived. They've always done better than those prophesying truth. But that will not be the case at Christ's second coming. Okay? It would be nice if it would have started back in that day, but it didn't. False prophets have abounded ever since then. And one of these days, he's going to get rid of them. So I believe what we're seeing here is God showing how he's going to get rid of the false prophets. Now this here too, now let's go to verse 6. I think this is a, this is a kind of a confusing passage right here. That I'm not going to pretend I completely get, I completely understand. I'm not going to do that. I'll tell you what the dispensationalists do with it. And I know they're wrong. Okay, but in verse 6, it says, And one shall say unto him, What are these wounds in thine hands? Then he shall answer, Those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Okay, now, what would we usually want to do with that verse? We would want to attach it to Jesus Christ, right? And I've heard the dispensationalists forever preach that when Jesus Christ returns at his second coming, they're going to see him. They're going to look in the nail prints in his hands. And they're going to say, these are with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. You know, and they're going to repent. And they're all going to get saved. You know, and so they'll teach this as this is just an example showing all Israel being saved at Christ's second coming. But the problem is, this is the false prophet talking about the wounds in his hands right here. Because notice in verse 5, but he shall say, I am no prophet. This is just showing how the false prophets are going to be ashamed during that time. During this time, at Christ's second coming, I believe, they are going to be ashamed. They're not going to want to say anything. They're not going to want to tell anybody their vision because, one, they're scared. Two, they're ashamed. He's going to say, I am no prophet. I am a husband for a man taught me to keep cattle for my youth. I'm just a regular guy, is what they're saying. And one shall say to him, what are these wounds in thine hands? And then he shall answer those which, which I was wounded in the house of my friends. I don't think we should attach this to Jesus Christ and the wounds in his hands. When it's talking about a false prophet. Now they do that, but they do a lot of stuff really wrong. Yeah, but now, you know, what, what is the significance of that? You know, I don't know for sure. You know, I know a lot of other passages in the Bible talks about false prophets do cutting themselves and things like that. And maybe uh, that would be people would see these wounds in his hands from them cutting themselves. And they're asking, me, hey, are you one of those false prophets? And then, you know, that's this way of saying, you know, this was something that was done to me. You know, I was wounded in the house of my friends. I don't know, maybe a way to they're trying to associate themselves with Jesus Christ in that time. You know, waves for them to be false prophets and antichrist. I, I don't know. I just know that the one saying this here is the false prophet. So don't be surprised if when the antichrist comes, he's got some wounds in his hands. Or I, I don't know that that's what that's talking about. I wouldn't put it past him. What do you think the Catholics would do if some guy came along and he had two major scars in his hands saying, I'm the Christ? You better believe they'd be kissing those hands and, you know, going crazy over them. You know, who, who knows? You know, some you know, might call him out for being a false prophet, being an antichrist. You know, I could see him saying something like this. You know, I was, you know this is something the Jews did to me. I was wounded in the house of my friends. You know, trying to pretend he's Christ. I don't know exactly the significance of that, but just I want you to know it's the false prophet saying that. So keep, keep that in mind. 
So, verse 7 says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts. Smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered, and I will turn my hand upon the little ones. Okay, now turn over to Matthew chapter 26. So, everything that we've been reading so far, we would say, you know, is referring to Christ's first coming, or second coming, right? Except for the first verse. But there's no doubt that this verse was fulfilled at Christ's first coming because the Bible tells us it was. Verse 31 of Matthew 26 says, um, Then saith Jesus unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. But after I am risen again, I will go before you into Galilee. So Jesus said, Jesus quotes Zechariah, and he said, this is going to happen tonight. This is going to be fulfilled tonight. And that's exactly what happened. What happened when they came and they took Jesus and they went after him? The disciples all scattered, didn't they? Just like the Bible said. So notice, there's no doubt, verse 7, was, or, or uh, verse 8, or 7, was fulfilled. There's no doubt about that. So verse 8 of Zechariah 13 says, And it shall come to pass that in all the land, saith the Lord, two parts therein shall be cut off and die. But the third shall be left therein. And I will bring the third part through the fire and will refine them as silver is refined and will try them as gold is tried. And they shall call on my name and I will hear them and I will say it is my people and they shall say the Lord is my God. Now, I can't find any evidence of that happening during Christ's first coming. You know, some might try to say, well, a lot of the Jews did get saved, probably a third. Well, I don't know about that. The dispensationalists say, uh, you know, a lot, some of them will say, well, all Israel gets saved at Christ's second coming, you know, because of their misinterpretation of Romans chapter 11. But then I've heard others say, well, no, only a third are going to get saved. So they'll say this is an example of a third of the Jews getting saved at Christ's second coming. I think that's just absolutely foolish. But one thing is very interesting, though. The ones that God will say are his people are the ones who called on him. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, the ones who called on him are the ones that he would say are his people. So, you know, I, I'm not going to tell you that this happened at Christ's first coming. and This is a reference to all the Jews who did get saved. It, it could be, you know, but... I'm not going to get up here and make a claim. A third of the Jews got saved at Christ's first coming. I, I'm not, I'm not, I, would, I wouldn't go that far. I will say, though, that Peter quoted that verse, Whosoever shall call upon him shall be delivered, and Acts or not be ashamed. You know, that, that was quoted by Peter. You know, maybe that's what, a reference to what took place at Pentecost when he had thousands of of Jews getting saved. Maybe this is a third of them. I, I don't know. I, you know, we don't want to get real crazy dogmatic on stuff like that. Once again, when it comes to Old Testament prophecy, what's important is that we, you know, we build our doctrine of what we believe is to come on what the New Testament says. Okay. Cause once some things have changed, but one thing that hasn't changed, it's always been those who call on the Lord who get saved. All right. Just like we see, in Genesis chapter 4, and just like we see here, it's always been, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Romans 10.13 is quoting the Old Testament. 
when it says that that's always been the method of salvation. All who would believe on him, all who would trust in him would be saved. That is the way it's always been done. So what we're seeing here, though, is an example of how the one, um, uh, of what I believe is just a dark saying. This is a very dark saying, and there is no doubt it had a message that meant something to them at that time. And the message was, if you follow me, I will do all these things for you. But, you know, they didn't follow him. But God is showing that he still had a plan of what he would do and a way he would fulfill his will without their help. Now, let's look at a few things that I want to show you to help you understand what's going on here. All right. So let's first let's go to Hebrews chapter eight and verse seven. So we could have a real good argument if we wanted to about, you know, whether or not Zechariah 13 has been fulfilled or not fulfilled. I showed you clear examples of things that were fulfilled, but yet there's other things in there that we would agree have not been fulfilled. But yet it's all a reference to that day. Okay, it's, it's all a reference to that day. So we've got to we've got to figure out exactly what's going on here. But in Hebrews chapter eight and verse seven, it says, for if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second for finding fault with them. He saith, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the first covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. Because they continue not my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. Understand, God has always had a plan to save people. God always had a plan to save Israel. He always had a plan for that. But that first covenant, there was nothing wrong with it. The problem was with the people. But that first covenant, it did come with certain promises. It did come with many prophecies. But because of the fact that the Jews could not keep that covenant, we see God had to bring in a second covenant. And so now God has now he's got some things had to change in order for God to be able to fulfill all these promises he made in the Old Testament. Because all the promises that God made in the Old Testament, they are going to be fulfilled. Okay, but they didn't all get fulfilled at his first coming like they were supposed to under the first covenant. So we're going to see a lot of things in the Old Testament where it prophesies of the coming of Christ. And in that passage, it's going to be hard to tell. First coming, second coming. Why, why are we seeing examples of both? Because under the Old Covenant, it was all supposed to happen at his first coming. But now, because finding fault with them, these things didn't happen at his first coming but everything he promised is still going to be fulfilled. It's just going to come later rather than sooner. It's going to come at his second coming. So that's an important concept that we, that we need to understand. So, um, you know, so what is or when is that day going to take place now under the new covenant? Okay. That, this is what we need. This is a very important thing. So now let's go back into Zechariah. And let's look at a few things about that day. Uh, Let me see. Starting in chapter, um, let's start in chapter 2. 
So what we're going to do, we're going to read all the references to that day in Zechariah. So it says in verse 10, we already saw this one, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for lo, I come, and I will dwell in the midst of thee, saith the Lord, and many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day, and shall be my people, and I will dwell in the midst of thee, and thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts has sent me unto thee. Now let me ask you, is that day in the future for us today, or is it in the past? That's in the future, right? I already showed you that is in the future. Now look at chapter 3, verse 9. It says, For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua, upon one stone shall be seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave the graving thereof, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, shall ye call every man his neighbor under the vine and under the fig tree. So he's talking about removing the iniquity of that land in one day. Did that happen yet, or is that something for the future? Well, spiritually, it happened on Calvary, didn't it? But has it happened physically yet? No. Physically, that has not happened. There's still plenty of sin all over the place, isn't there? Everywhere you go, there's still plenty of sin. Look at chapter 9 and verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just in having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. And then in verse, um, so we already know that one happened in chapter 9. And then in verse 16, it says, And the Lord their God shall save them in that day as the flock of his people, for they shall be as the stones of a crown lifted up as an ensign upon his land. So did verse 16 happen yet no it didn't you say well it spiritually happened at calvary okay but understand too that proves once again that, that day does not have to be a 24-hour period because did jesus die on the day of the triumphal entry did he die on palm sunday no he didn't so you know, either way you spin that, that proves that day is not a 24-hour period. But during that day and that time or whatever, you know, now is the day of salvation. But is it a 24-hour period? No, it's not. Okay, but verse 9 is clearly a reference to that day. And yet we know that already happened. Okay, chapter 11, verse 10 says, And I took my staff, even beauty, and cut it asunder, that I might break my covenant, which I had made. With all the people, and it was broken in that day. And so the poor of the flock that waited upon me knew that it was the word of the Lord. And I said unto them, If ye think good, give me my price, and if not, forbear. So they wait for my price, 30 pieces of silver. So now that day is referring to something that happened at Jesus' first coming. Chapter 12, verse 2. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all people round about, when they shall be in the siege, both against Judah and against Jerusalem. And in that day, I will make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people. All that burden themselves with it shall be cut in pieces, though all the people of the earth be gathered together against it. In that day, saith the Lord, I will smite every horse with astonishment and his rider with madness. And I will open mine eyes upon the house of Judah and will smite every horse of the people with blindness. Verse 6, and in that day will I make the governors of Judah like and hurt the fire among the wood and like a torch of fire in a sheath. And they shall devour all the people round about on the right hand and on the left. And Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place, even in Jerusalem. 
The Lord also shall save the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem do not magnify themselves against Judah. In that day shall the Lord defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And he that is feeble among them of that, at that day shall be as David, and the house of David shall be as God, as the angel of the Lord. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication. And they shall look on me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. We know that verse happened. We looked at that last week because John told us that it did. But when did those other things happen? They didn't. Was all the world gathered against Jerusalem at that time? Did Jesus go and smite every horse with astonishment at that time? No. But is that not something that we see in the future that's going to happen? Even in the New Testament? Yes, it is. So, But how could that day be a reference to something that has already happened and also a reference to something that is going to happen roughly 2,000 years later? Why are we seeing that? In chapter 13... Verse 2, it says, And it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols out of the land, and they shall no more be remembered. And, I, and also I will cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to pass out of the land. Do we all think there's any unclean spirits in Israel right now? Boy, it's crawling with unclean spirits. There's no doubt about that. And it shall come to pass in that day that the prophets should be ashamed Every one of his vision when he hath prophesied, neither shall they wear a rough garment to deceive. Anybody deceiving anybody over in Jerusalem today? Oh my goodness, yeah. That has not been fulfilled. Alright, in chapter 14, verse 1, Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, and thy spoils shall be divided in the midst of thee. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses rifled, and the women ravished, and half the city shall go forth into captivity, and the residue of the people shall be cut off from the city. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as he fought in the day of battle, and his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west. And there should be a very great valley, and half of the mountain should be removed toward the north, and half of it toward the south. Now, I'm not going to talk a whole lot about that. We'll be looking at that next week. But has the Mount of Olives been split in two yet? No, it has not. I, I've been there. The Mount of Olives have not been split into two. The water has not come from Jerusalem and gone to the Dead Sea and healed those waters. We'll look, we'll look at that next week. Everything's still dead. There's nobody fishing in the Dead Sea right now that clearly has not happened yet that also is a reference to that day so you know we've got to be able to do something we've got to be able to explain why in the book of zechariah we see all these references to that day and yet that day does appear to be one individual that day you know it's not that day and that other day you know it's, talking about, it's, it's, a, it's a theme to the whole thing. And that day, ultimately, is a reference to the coming of Christ. And you say, well, some refer, refer to the first coming, some to the second coming. Yes, that's the way it is now. Okay? But understand, that was not the way it was supposed to be. 
And you say, well, Zechariah got it wrong. No, Zechariah got it right because Zechariah said this will come to pass if you're going to if you're going to follow the Lord. And they didn't. But yet Jesus is still going to do all the things that he promised to do. It's just he didn't get it all done at his first coming. There's still more to do. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is a very important thing we need to understand about the purpose of Christ's second coming. It says in verse 23, But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterwards they that are Christ at his coming. Then come at the end... When he, ha- when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Okay, now I want you, I want you to get this here. The Bible often speaks of things that be not as though they are. There's a verse that actually says that. Okay? If God says something is going to happen, it's as good as happened. So if you read a place in the scriptures where God says this has happened and it hasn't happened yet, it's not a contradiction when you see another place where it shows it hasn't happened yet. Okay? God speaks of that in a victorious way. Okay? When it comes to us versus the Antichrist, we won. Well, are we going to win or have we already won? Hey, no. The outcome is already determined on that. Yes, it hasn't happened yet, but if I want to declare victory right now, I can do that. Y'all understand how that's appropriate, okay? So notice how it mentions, for he hath put all things under his feet. Because I'm going to show you other places where it says he hasn't yet. But when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted, which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Okay? Psalms 8, 5 says, For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet. So, we have a place in 1 Corinthians where it's talking about like when he does it, but it's kind of saying it like he's done it too. In Psalms chapter 8, it's saying it as if it's already done. But in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 22, it says, And has put all things under his feet, and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is the, his body, the fullness of him, that filleth all in all. So here in Ephesians, it also says he put all things under his feet. But in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 7, it says, Thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, quoting Psalms, which we already looked at. Thou crownest him with glory and honor, and didst set him over the work of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet, for in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. You see that right there? Everywhere else in the Bible, it says it's already done. In Hebrews, it's quoting a verse that says it's already done. But then he says, we don't see that yet. Okay? Now, is it okay? There's a song, uh, my uncle used to sing years ago, I love the song. Where it said, it's called, you know, uh, Grave, Where's Your Victory? Death, Where's Your Sting? Now, you say, well, the sting of death is sin. You know, the Bible says, then shall be brought to pass. 
death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, uh, oh, grave, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? You can say that hasn't happened yet, right? But at the same time, I still think it's appropriate to sing that song. I think we can go ahead and claim that death has no victory over us. You know, the, the, let's go ahead and just live like those things have already been defeated because God said they will be. Therefore, let's just look at it as though it's been done. It's okay for us to do that. And I still like that song. And I understand we still die, you know, on this earth. But you know what? Who cares? We're just going to be in heaven and we're going to come back one of these days. And nothing can change the outcome of that. So just because some things we haven't seen them yet because we presently are not in that time, it doesn't mean that they're not finished as far as God is concerned. So there's many things that the Bible says Jesus defeated, that Jesus conquered at his death on the cross, yet we don't see all those things finished yet. And But he is going to do those things at his second coming. Okay, That is the purpose of his second coming. There is still some work to do. There is, there is still some things to finish. There are still some things he's got to put under his feet. And one of those things he's got to put under his feet, he's got one final enemy that he's going to destroy. And what is that? That's death. That clearly is something that's to come. People are still dying. But one of these days there will be no more death. You know, so part of what Jesus is going to do in his second coming and in his millennial kingdom is he is going to finish the work that did not get finished at his first coming. That's what Acts chapter 3, verse 20 is talking about. It says, And ye shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. So, nobody ever would have predicted exactly how things would play out at Christ's first coming and no one can take these things from the Old Testament and predict how they're going to play out at the second coming either. We don't really know for sure. But one thing we do know, we should always interpret the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. And one thing that, that is clear, you know, in the Old Testament, there's a, there's a lot of things that did not get fulfilled that were promised from the Old Testament. But those things will be fulfilled at Christ's second coming. There's still promises about the land that need to be fulfilled. And those are not going to be given, you know, that's not going to be fulfilled through the physical Jews of today. It's going to be fulfilled to the resurrected Jews of the Old Testament. They're going to be resurrected. He's going to come back and this is, this is the thing that blows my mind. The Zionists, they want to make it all about, you know, the Jews of today. They're going to get the land or, even, or just some future generation of 144,000 or whatever. No, God made that promise specifically to Abraham. Abraham is going to inherit that. Isaac and Jacob, the very ones that God promised. And the fact the Bible, and then Jesus flat out said, you know, they're going to come from the north, south, the east, and the west. And they're going to sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom. But the children of the kingdom shall be thrust out. Jesus specifically mentioned that they would be excluded from it. These promises are going to be fulfilled to those that the promises were made to 
not to a group of people out there today who reject Christ. That is one of the most ridiculous things that you can even imagine, yet that's what people are puking forth today, thanks to dispensationalism. So it's like there's a lot of stuff that dispensationalists get right that they often say as far as you know future things. Well, you know, Jesus still has to do this. He still got to do. Well, yeah, I agree with that. But you're just, you're adding stuff to it that's just not in the Bible. And we've, we've got to be honest with that. And so anybody who tries to take the book of Zechariah and make it all in the past is being clumsy and dishonest with the scriptures. Anyone who make, one makes it all for the future is being clumsy and dishonest. What we are seeing in the book of Zechariah was what God wanted to do at his, at his first coming. And all of it is saying, in that day, it didn't all happen at his first coming because Israel did not fulfill the terms of the agreement as set forth in Zechariah chapter 6. But yet Jesus is still going to do all the things that he said he would do. So anything you see in the book of Zechariah, they are like, look, Jesus fulfilled this, but he didn't fulfill this other stuff. Okay, well, he will later. Then. It's, it's all still going to get done. But it will be at his second coming. So hopefully that all makes sense. So when you see that day, don't get freaked out when you see stuff from the first coming and stuff from the second coming. Okay? That I, I ho Hopefully that all makes sense and is a help. So let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, I pray to help us to, as we try to study these deep things, Lord, and these difficult passages. I just pray to help us to go into them, uh, just trying to get what you have for us and not trying to just make things fit to go along with whatever we've already decided is true. I pray you'll let, let the Bible shape our thinking on these things and just and not a set of theology, Lord, that's been put together by man. I just pray you help us to learn more as a result. Make your word more clear to us. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, let's go ahead.